All right, children. Who brought the Danish this morning? Thanks, Bill. I came in this morning after snow blowing and everything else and getting set up for communion and I, I saw the eggs on the counter. I thought they were donuts. I mean, I, I, I think the eggs would have been good except they were raw and I didn't have time to... I didn't have time to cook them, so I, I appreciate the Danish, Bill. And I'm so... Well... He appreciates all ethnic groups. As I understand it, in Scandinavia, uh, the Danish are... Um, they're the rabble-rousers of Scandinavia. They're the, they're the drinkers, Verla. And, and they're the ones that chew, you know, Copenhagen. Yeah. And then um, the Norwegians uh, exalt themselves over the Swedes. Ha <laughs> ha, we have oil. <laughs> and the Finns uh, have to defend themselves from Russia. Yeah, they're busy all the time. And the Swedish... Yes, and the Swedish... So the Swedes' motto is, we fight to the last fin. Because they're the buffer, you know. All right. Isn't that great? We are going to pray Psalm 51... Responsively by half verse. And the hymn, since we've been in the office of the keys this week in the catechism, will be the final four stanzas of hymn 614. Our antiphon verse from the congregation at prayer is Psalm 118. No, it's Isaiah 1, verse 18. I'm glad you're listening. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, 
they shall be as wool. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Fill up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Spare us, O Lord, and mercifully forgive us our sins. Though by our continual transgressions we have merited your chastisements, be gracious to us. Grant that all these punishments which we have deserved may not come upon us, but that all things may work to our everlasting good. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution. That is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. What is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Where is this written? 
This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you despise nothing you have made, and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts, that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you full pardon and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Let us pray for the church and her pastors during this Lenten tide, for faithfulness in the preaching of the gospel, in the call to repentance, in the proclamation of Christ's forgiveness. For all church workers, our teachers, deacons, deaconesses, and other church workers, for missionaries and all who serve the church, for fruitful and salutary use of the blessed sacrament of Christ's body and blood among us, for Abigail, Kathleen, Lynn, Ashlyn, and Doug celebrating baptismal birthdays, that they would be preserved in the faith, for Aaron and Janine celebrating a wedding anniversary that they might have their marriage rooted and grounded in Christ's love for them, for Rolf, Tammy, Cindy, Mary Ellen, Sharon, Dawn, Nior, Tom, John, Luke, Jean, and Gabby, suffering various afflictions of the body, that they would be preserved steadfast in the true faith, be brought healing according to God's will, and abide in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. For Mark Thonies, Aunt Karen, Beth Benders, Godfather Paul Nauman in hospice care, that they would be guarded and kept by Christ's holy angels until they are delivered from this veil of tears. And for the family of Alan Gable, our brother in Christ who has been called to his eternal rest, that they may be comforted by the promise of the resurrection and a blessed reunion with all those who have died in the faith. All this we ask in the words our Savior taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 614, stanzas 5 through 8. Please remain seated for stanza 8. 
The words which absolution give are his who died that we might live. The minister whom Christ has sent is but his humble instrument. When ministers lay on their hands, absolved by Christ the sinner stands. He who by grace the word believes, the purchase of his blood receives. All praise to you, all Christ shall be, for absolution full and free, in which you show your richest grace, from false indulgence guard our race. Praise God the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, three in one, as was, is now, and so shall be, world without end eternally. Amen. Yes, that is the catechism hymn on the office of the keys. How about that? <clears throat> if you will uh, <clears throat> turn first in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. We will talk a little bit about the Son of Man. <clears throat> Excuse me, while you're doing that, Longtime member Alan Gable uh, died early yesterday morning. Um, he, had, he had had cancer of the stomach and esophagus back in 2009, underwent surgery and chemotherapy and so forth, and um, uh, has not been in the greatest of health since. And you'll recall that his wife Janine died in uh, the end of, end of July, first part of August. And uh, so then uh, he was unable to stay in their home. And first the courtyard, then a fall, then a rehab, then back to the courtyard, then moved up to Oshkosh and um, had a very nice facility there in Oshkosh. If anyone wants to know about it, Evergreen, um, Evergreen Assisted Living and Adult Care Facility. And uh, so he uh, finally fell asleep in Jesus at 12.15 yesterday morning. I'm going to attempt, bef his funeral will be next Tuesday at high noon here at Peace. There will be visitation for about an hour and a half beforehand, 10.30 to noon. Um, the last time he was able to receive the sacrament, January 30th, we talked about his service. So that uh, was good. 
But prior to his service, I'm going to attempt to take an inventory of contributions that he's made to the congregation over the years. Uh, just in this room alone, the anchor over there on the wall, he made that. The symbols over here of the, the pitcher with the pouring into the font, the keys here the staff and stole of the pastor, the lamp for prayer, the Trinitarian symbol over there. This was our first processional cross. This is the days when we had no money, but uh, I got this crucifix, and I had Al just fashion the simple staff, and we used that for, I don't know, 15... 20, almost, almost 20, years. 20 years, yeah, before uh, we got the new processional cross, which he also, he didn't carve the corpus, but he made the processional cross there. The torches that we use, the two that are on the pulpit, he made those, and the torches that uh, are on display for Christmas tide and Easter, he made those, including the cabinet uh, that houses them. He made, that. Uh, he made this guy, well, uh, back in the day, when the academy first started, there was no addition. And we were, you know, craving space. So I had this idea. All I, all I had to do is have an idea, and I'd bring it to Al, and he would draw something up. He never said, no, I don't want to, can't do that. So I said, you know, we could use the nave at various times for a classroom, um, but we need some sort of way to do this. And he made, now, this is altered from the original, but the original had, if you just imagine this top piece here, not the bottom part, and there were these um, wood hooks, and they hooked over the pew. So then, we had about half a dozen or something like that, six or eight, and they'd hook over there, and it was just at the right height for kids to write on and, and do assignments. So he did that, and then when, when we got the addition, we didn't do that anymore. Um, I said, can you alter one of those so that I can use it in here? So then he did this. Um, starting in the front of the church, you got the altar, uh, and the pulpit and the lectern. And um, he did not do the carving. The wood carving is done by Brian Berenson. Whose phone is ringing? Ah, okay. Um, he was not quite able to finish the altar and the pulpit. He had an almost finished bits when he got cancer and and had to have treatment. So Mark Gretzinger, um, good friend with, with Al, finished the job on those. But he did all the preliminary. But he did all the, all the drawing. He took all my. All the drawings and all the preliminary, all the turnings. Did you see the two turnings? Yeah. He did all that. It was just to put together. Just the final finishing touches to put it together. So if you move from the, from the chancel this way. Um, well, just hang on. I'm getting there. <laughs> you move from the chancel this way, 
the, the communion rail in 2010 was a combo deal with um, the late Bob Heisey and Al Gable. So Bob Heisey did the uh, metal work, the wrought iron black, and had it um, this special powder coating or whatever. And uh, I remember the day they put that in and Al had, I still don't know how he did, how did he make those squares for the, I don't know how that's, how do you do that? Because these are over two inches yeah, thick. He, he did, he did. And it's a perfect, but you don't, how do you get a square? But anyway. No, I mean, there's no overhang of cut. That's right. And anyway, they put down, first there's a bottom plate of board that went over those wrought iron and then the, then the top uh, railing. Uh, then as you, that's in the chancel, then you come out and the hymn boards, that was one of the early things that he did in my tenure here. Um, the late Bert Stark, who was elder when I came, um, he was retired uh, public school, uh, Milwaukee public school teacher and administrator, and moved out to Thousand Oaks, and he came to the congregation in the 80s. He would always put the hymn numbers up. And um, Bert later got Parkinson's disease and so forth, but there's a, an aluminum, like 12-foot aluminum stepladder in the vestry up in front. So the old hymn boards, in order to change the, the numbers, you'd have to get that ladder out. And of course, that ladder is banging on the door jams and it's banging on the beam in there, and it, it really bothered Bert because he was always doing that. So he approached Al, can you design something? And had Al accepted Deacon's and my suggestion that we market these through the CCA, we could have made a lot of money. Well, he did, in fact, make, he made some money. We got, he got, because of his work and people coming for CCA symposium, he did some commissions for pastors yeah, including the, the, in the nave, you've got all of the wood-carved symbols of the ministry on the walls. He, he made all of those. But those hymn boards, you can reach, well, if you're at least 5'5 five, five or so, you can reach up and grab the handle on the bottom. You push up, you bring it a little bit out, and you slide it down, and then it can hang there. Or you can, when it's down, lift it up and out of the track, which is what we usually do. And you can, uh-oh. So that's what we usually do. And then you can put them back up. It's, they're very fascinating. So you should take a look at it, Mark. You'd be quite impressed. Close up. Back, back, to, back to the... Started making the metal work, doing the metal work, and Al called me laughing. 
Bob had called him and said, I can only get this down to 50 thousandths of an inch. Is that good enough? <laughs> <laughs> and I told him, Mickey Woodworker, 16th of an inch is good for you. <laughs> yeah, Wood's got a little give to it. Yeah. And then, so then you move further on in the naves. You've got the symbols on the wall. You've got, uh, the, of course, we talked about the torches and the hymn boards. Then you go, um, Al is the one who built the platforms that serve as our quasi-choir loft. And, um, and then, as a part of that, uh, those gray platforms that we sometimes, they're super heavy, we bring them in in the chancel. They're actually designed to create an entire choir loft across the back at the same level. So two platforms go in the center aisle in between the two sides of risers. And then there's a one that gets turned parallel to the, to the pews that sits right in the niche. So you can stand from one end with choir members all the way across. Of course, you can walk up and you have to duck to get out into the narthex. We've done it a few times for lessons and carols. It's a little bit of a, of a pain for getting in and out. However, in terms of being able to have the whole choir up there, that was pretty cool. And then you move into the narthex, the... Uh, sound cabinet, the script counter, he built that. Every other table that's on wheels that's in the narthex, he bought that, brought, uh, built that. The um, bubbler um, steps, he built those. Moving down the hall, in the academy, the, the, um, the academy dedication plaque with the 10-point commitment statement on it, the, the wood that that's mounted on, uh, he built that. He also supervised the um, building of the garage that was over here on the west side of the property and then moved at the time of the parking lot revision over here. Um, the shelves uh, yeah, the shelves, some of them which no longer exist. Uh, if, oh, going back up in the front of the vestry, the, when I was spending uh, over a decade in that very spacious uh, <laughs> office by the font, he built the desk in there that fits in the odd-shaped wall and then the shelves up above. And I've often said, you know, the building may blow down in a hurricane, or whatever, but those shelves will remain. So I would get on the desk, and then I'd put the stool on top of the desk and climb up the stool and grab a hold of the shelf to get my books down. So. Anyway, oh yes, all of these that you see around, these little missile stands, he built those too. George? There's a lot of cabinets that roll and fold up that we use in the academy. Oh yes. Fantastic. And he made the church signs. Yeah, yeah he made the church signs, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, other than that, he also did the academy sign. right. Other than that, he he yeah. never did too much around here. <laughs> and he was in the choir, yeah. right? Uh, Al became a Lutheran uh, after he was married. He was Methodist before that, and when I first came, 
and was directing the choir, sitting with him, he says, you know, I've, I, I, I really have a dream of building an altar someday for a church. But uh, I, I filed that away. I needed to catechize him into Lutheran sacramental theology so that once we got to the building of the altar, it would be, it would be an, a Lutheran altar. So. Well, uh, Janine's um, mother was Lutheran. Her father was Roman Catholic. They went Catholic, and then she came back to Lutheran. Then her mother, I catechized and brought her mother back in, too. All right. I know we took time out of our study to do that, but um, it's good to have those remembrances. I'm I'm hoping to um, put together... Uh, and I'm going to work with Deacon on, he doesn't even know this yet, um, <laughs> a, a history for the... Yeah, because Pastor Christensen uh, was wondering, so the, the lessons and carol service uh, was here before you came? I said, no. Mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Well, but it's, it, was the, it was the 30... What was it, 33rd? Yeah. yeah. And I said, and, and you've not been here yet 33 years. And I said, I know, but when you start something, you come in September, you've not had an anniversary yet, and you started in December, there's the first one. So. Same with the vigil. The vigil, all of those things, yeah. All right. I remember chanting with the choir the first time. They were panicked. (laughs) Now it's a piece of cake. All right. Daniel chapter 7. And the reason we're talking about this is because we were talking about the transfiguration in Mark. And he is referred to there in the confession prior to this by Peter. He asked the question... Who do men say, I, the Son of Man, am? So this designation, Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, last week I told you that in the Old Testament, messianic hopes and expectations. If you go way back to the beginning, after the fall into sin, you see Eve's expectation for the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. So when Cain is born, I've gotten a man who is the Lord. That's literally what she confesses. She had the right theology, but the wrong guy. She understood that the seed of the woman would be the Lord who would crush the serpent's head. So already there is implied in Genesis 3.15 the virgin birth of the Son of God as the seed of the woman who would conquer Satan and death. You move forward. So this is why the genealogies were so important in uh, the book of Genesis in particular. Then you get to Abraham. And Abraham is given the promise that in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So now you got seed of the woman. Now you've got seed of Abraham. And the seed of Abraham will bring the blessing of salvation to all nations. 
quite stunning, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel, the foundational promise is the promise of salvation for all people. So God shows Israel that through the seed of Abraham, the blessing of salvation would come to all. So there's that messianic hope, looking for the seed of Abraham. You move forward to David. And David is from the tribe of Judah. David is anointed king. He's a man after God's own heart. He wants to build a house for the Lord. It's not right that I should live in a house. And the ark of the Lord is intense. And the Lord says, no, you will not build a house, but your son will build a house. Except the son he's referring to in the promise to David is not Solomon, but the real prince of peace, Jesus. Who, and the house that he builds is the temple of the Lord, his own flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us doesn't mean Solomon is unimportant. He's a type, a picture, but he's certainly not the real one, not with all the wives that he had and all of the unfaithfulness at the end of his reign that resulted in the division of Israel into the southern and northern kingdoms. No, the true prince of peace is Jesus. Um, So you got that messianic expectation. Oh, I I, uh, meant to insert Moses in there prior to uh, the, the rise of the settling in the land of promise and the rise of the monarchy. Moses is, uh, tells the people, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. Him you shall hear. And so Deuteronomy 18, they're looking for the prophet. And um, this is why Jesus does so many things that Moses did. Going up on the mountain to pray in communion with his father, coming down again to teach. Moses went up Mount Sinai. He came down and delivered the word of God to the children of Israel. Moses was a redeemer of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus comes and is the redeemer. You have in in, um, Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, as we noted, This is my beloved son, again is spoken by the Father, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So when Jesus does these things that look like Moses, like the feeding of the 5,000, and they're sitting on the grass like sheep being fed, at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, they say, this is the prophet. They're identifying him as the one uh, who was promised to be like Moses. So all of these expectations, um, hope and expectation in the Old Testament, move inextricably forward to Jesus. And another one is the Son of Man reference. And in the Gospels, it's one of the most common references to Jesus, the Son of Man. So that's why I wanted to look at uh, at least the prophet Daniel uh, on that particular subject and see where he, um, where that appears. Son of man, we also talk about him, and rightly so, as son of God. So son of God and son of man in one person highlights what the catechism has. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, 
begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. The two natures, but one person. So in Jesus' ministry, he is in a state of humiliation. He is the Son of God. He always has been. But he sets aside the use of his divine power and glory, his divine knowledge, and he only does what the Father gives him to do. That's why you have some of these seemingly strange appearances. The woman with the flow of blood touches his garment. Who touched me? Power had gone out from him by the Father's will, and he asks, who touched me? Jesus actually, in a state of humiliation, growing up, learned. How can he who possesses all knowledge, learn. That's part of the mystery of the humiliation. So this reference to Son of Man, uh, among other things, means that he identifies with us in every way. He has taken upon himself our flesh, our blood. And in the state of humiliation, it means he must eat. He must drink. He must sleep. He must live in his earthly pilgrimage the way Adam failed to live. By faith in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's this coming Sunday's gospel from Matthew. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man does not live. Okay, He is the son of man. So he is for us what Adam failed to be. He does for us what Adam failed to do. Okay, so in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then, because of the sound of the pompous or the great words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time." Who is this great beast? Satan, Satan, of course. This is a scene of heaven, the judgment seat of God, referred to as the Ancient of Days. I was watching, verse 13, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, 
he came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. So you see, you've got the ancient of days, and you've got one like the Son of Man. So who's the ancient of days? God the Father. Father, And one like the Son of Man, God the Son. And notice how it echoes what you have in Holy Week in Jesus' parables where he talks about the end times and judgment day coming in the clouds with all his holy angels with him. So they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. To whom was given? The Son of Man. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve, this is your own Bible, you can circle that and say worship. Worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, go back to Christmas. Go back to, like, the Annunciation. Um, How Mary is told by the angel Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, about the son that would be born to her. And I know it's not in Mark's gospel, but you will, you will uh, indulge me in this. Listen to the parallel language. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. So he's conceived and born the baby boy Jesus. He is, from the time of his conception, living in a state of humiliation as the Son of Man, born of the Virgin. But then, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed from Daniel. There. So you see, you see the parallel. So he who is the son of man, who humbled himself even to the point of death, is the son of God, to whom belong all honor, glory, dominion, and worship, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Cool, hey? So verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the vision of my head troubled me. I came near to the one, those who stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these signs and so forth. So moving on still further in chapter 7, um, yes. Is there, looking at uh, verses 11 and 12 again, is there a connection between these verses and Revelation 12, warfare broke out in heaven? Yes. Yeah, the, the warfare of heaven and the casting out of Satan and uh, 
What you have in Jesus' victory over the evil one as the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head is a cosmic, a cosmic battle. So that the event of the cross, whereby Mel Gibson has it correct, you know, when you see Satan screaming uh, in, in hell, and it's like his, his toupee flies off. I don't, I don't, it's kind of an interesting, Wah! you know, that, that that victory is cosmic in the sense that it, it involves heaven, earth and heaven. And it transcends time. So it reaches backward and forward. And so the, the cross of Christ, whereby he defeated the great dragon, the beast, and all of his evil beasts, the demons, happened in time and space. And I think it's pretty much incontrovertible. It was April 3rd, 33 AD, in the, according to the Julian calendar. But it transcends time and space. And, and it is cosmic in nature. So these vignettes that you see, like in Revelation or here in Daniel, is no wonder Daniel was troubled you know, by this. It was quite, quite the scene that he's witnessing. But yes, that is the victory that Christ won over the evil one, establishing his kingdom in his death upon the cross and resurrection the third day. So... Yeah. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony, which is Revelation 12. So what's being described here is that the time already occurred, but it's going to occur because of the time? Well, um, what, what Daniel is beholding mm-hmm. is the end of the world, the final judgment and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's beholding it at that time. It's 500 and... 86 is the time of the fall, so it's a little bit after that, 570, 80, 565, 70, somewhere in that B.C. But he's seeing the future, okay? So, John yeah. wrote the book of Daniel, right? No, 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 Daniel. John didn't write the book of Daniel. No, John wrote the Revelation. Okay. Daniel wrote Daniel. Okay, sorry. Yeah, because you're talking, Daniel, Daniel and the other exiles were carried captive to the land of Babylon, present-day Iraq, in 586 B.C., long time before the Apostle John was born. Okay. All right. So, you know, when you look at Jesus, and this is coming back to the transfiguration, I think we'll, we'll, we'll go back to Mark then. Okay, that's... that's that's enough on, on that, except to bring, bring these cl- conclusions. Mark chapter 9. When, when you look at Jesus in his earthly ministry, who would have thought that this, that this Jesus, did not, did not he grow up with our children here in Nazareth? Is he not the son of Mary and Joseph? Okay. So to look at him, like Isaiah says, he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. I don't by any means think he was an ugly man, but I mean, he's not in a state of humiliation. He's a carpenter's son. Okay? He looked a normal guy, 
Except he had a full head of hair, Larry. Sorry about that. But, uh, who would think that, that this one, who is the son of man, identifies with us in every way, is also son of God, and the one through whom the eternal kingdom of salvation would be established. That's, that's the point. So in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, each of whom had their time in the Old Testament beholding the glory of God and foreseeing the future kingdom of God that would never end, testify that Jesus is seed of woman. A prophet greater than Moses, seed of Abraham, and son of God. Okay. They have appointments. Okay, so coming back then here, just to refresh your memory on where we were at before. Mark chapter 9, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. He was transfigured before them metamorphosized, his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So the idea of pure glory, perfect holiness, and Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, a tabernacle, a dwelling place of the Lord, and to capture this moment. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid in the presence of the divine. And that's what they're seeing, the divine Son of God. So Son of Man is no one less than the divine and eternal Son of God, as John would say, the Logos, the word that became flesh. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. So there's the designation again. This is my beloved Son, the Father's approval. Why? Because Jesus shares completely in the Father's nature And in love for his Father, he loves us and is faithful to set his face to Jerusalem and to die for the sins of the world, to make reconciliation and to redeem the creation. Hear him, because a prophet speaks forth the word of God. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. What a great picture, because... He is the object of our faith as Christians. He who is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, he is my Lord. Now this glory cloud, uh, so many, just uh, the, the older I live, the more these things jump out at me when the studying of the scriptures, and that is Trinitarian references, the, the interplay Uh, of conversation between the Father and the Son and how they send forth the Spirit, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. There's so many subtle uh, references 
to the one God who is nonetheless three persons. Okay, so look at uh, the Old Testament, that glory cloud, who is, uh, who is in the glory cloud of Yahweh, but the Holy Trinity himself and the person of the Son of the Father. You see this glory cloud not only leading the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament, but you see the glory cloud make its appearance in the New Testament. The birth of Jesus, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel of the Lord says, do not be afraid. Notice how fear is the natural response of fallen creatures, even if they're Christians, even if they believe, like the shepherds, or like Zechariah, or Mary, when Gabriel appears, all of these are, in many respects, theophanies. That is to say, a theophany is a manifestation of God in his glory. And frail, sinful human beings cower in fear. You see it in Daniel, when he saw this vision, (gasps) he was troubled by it. Because it's so otherworldly and it is, connects them to, to Christ. Okay, Mark first. Yeah, and, and in the Daniel text, I noticed, it just struck me this morning, how, how many times fire or flames or fiery images is used. Yes, and no wonder Elijah and Moses uh, are the ones that appear as Old Testament representatives with Jesus because of the connection to God's revelation through, through fire, through light, the fire of the burning bush that is not consumed, the fire that falls uh, from heaven, the prophets of Baal. Deacon. That's right. That's right. It's in the book of Judges, Manoah. Um, you know, and... and um, Samson, when he is born, uh, he is called. Or the, the, he's called a Nazarite, but they ask the Lord, "Who are you? You know, what is your name? How is it that you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful?" Which uh, I have argued, since the Hebrew in Isaiah nine, the word "wonderful" could be taken adjectivally, as in "wonderful counselor." I don't believe it should be. I think it is a noun, a name, and that Handel has it correct in Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful because of the connection to the revelation of the Son of God as the unique messenger to Manoah and his wife in the, in the book of Judges. His name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Okay, so uh, glory cloud, angel of the Lord upon the shepherds, and how many times, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Whether it's Gabriel to Zechariah to Mary, the angel of the Lord to the shepherds. Okay, so Jesus is in the cloud. He is in the burning bush. He is in the glory cloud in the Old Testament. And it is the cloud that overshadows them here. 
And when they look up, they saw no one anymore but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And of course, when the Son of Man rises from the dead, you know then that the Son of Man is Son of God. That's right. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Do you see, among other reasons, why Jesus said, don't tell anybody? Because they weren't going to get it right until after he had risen from the dead and had, they had received the Holy Spirit so that they could interpret and rightly bear witness. And they asked him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Here, they just saw Elijah. Why do they say this? Then he answered and told them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Who is he referring to? John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they wished. He was arrested by Herod and then ended up losing his head. Okay. But notice Jesus' rhetorical questions here. You know, how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things? and be treated with contempt. How is that written? That is to say, why is that written? It is to say, was ist das? What is that? What does it mean? It's a catechism question. And of course, he's going to answer this question for them, but they don't get it. And the answer to that question will finally be made clear when he rises from the dead and he appears to the Emmaus disciples and when he appears in the upper room, when they touch his hands and his side, the places where the wounds were made. How is it that this must happen? Because the Son of Man has redeemed mankind. For he is the Son of God who sacrificed upon the cross, accomplished the establishment of the kingdom of God that will never end. Susan. Ezekiel was the son of man. And the first time God comes and talks to him and calls him son of man over and over, it's about they're going to treat you with contempt. That's right. This is what you got to say. You've got to tell them whatever I tell you to do. But that's, they're not going to listen. Yeah, that's, another, that's the reference that Jesus is referring to here from Ezekiel. What's the chapter? Well, it starts in 2, but it just... It, it continues on, so it starts in 2. Yeah, and so this is where, again, you see images in the Old Testament of Christ. Ezekiel's one of them. Daniel's one of them. David's one of them. Solomon's one of them. Mark. Uh, excise the title Son of Man and make it uh, O Mortal One. 
Oh, for heaven's sake. This is where you want a good, even if you don't understand what the words are, you want a proper translate. Just translate the word accurately into the language. Yeah. Don't, well, it must mean this. Yeah. And then mortal one, which is a degenderizing of the sun. Beware of gender neutral language. And that whole canonical, uh, that whole canonical connection is not lost. Right. Yeah. Canonical means the, the, the standard of authority with the whole of the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Okay. So we'll, we'll meet next week and pick it up with. This boy is healed in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Notice what's coming. Uh, Palm Sunday is chapter 11, so we're not far away. There's 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Yes? Fish fry set up today. Oh, yes. This is so very important. We're in a round of five Fridays running for the fish fry. There you go. Response was, if I live closer, I'd be a regular there. All right. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.